New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Language is an important part of any society because it enables people to communicate and express themselves. For several centuries, indigenous languages have been dying out. The loss of these foundational ways of communicating passed down for millennia, along with their unique arts and cosmologies, may have consequences that won't be understood until it's too late to reverse them. The good news is that there is an increasing recognition of the value of native languages and they are being resurrected, taught, and preserved. This recognition acknowledges that speech is not just a body of vocabulary or a set of grammatical rules. As Wade Davis, anthropologist and ethnobotanist says, it's a vehicle for which the soul of a culture comes through the material world. He goes on to say every language, in some sense, is an ecosystem of ideas, a watershed of thought, an old-growth forest of the mind. Today we'll explore the fascinating path of Calico Beamer Trap. He's a man born in England who has ended up in Hawaii teaching Hawaiian at the Halei Olejo at the University of Hawaii in Hilo. He speaks Hawaiian 90% of his day and also acts as a translator in courtroom proceedings when any Hawaiian-speaking person requests it. Join us for the next hour as we explore the significance of preserving and teaching the indigenous Hawaiian language with our guest, Calico Beamer Trap. I'm Justine Willis Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Calico, welcome. Aloha, Justine. How are you? Aloha. Back at you. Thank I'm you. fine. Yeah. Thank you. It's great to be here on your beautiful, beautiful island. I've come over here to meet with you, but also for the Merry Monarch Annual Hula Festival. So I'm just very, very excited to be here. Yeah, it's a beautiful festival. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'd like for us to start, if you would help our listeners know how a man from England ended up in Hawaii teaching Hawaiian language. Yes, well, it starts many years ago. In 1970, I was born on a small island off the south coast of England called the Isle of Wight. And when I was there, I grew up, went to school, and then uh, in the late 1970s, my parents divorced and my mother moved to California in the United States. 
it wasn't long before I decided I wanted to be there as well. And so I moved to California in 1982. Uh, when I was there, I met uh, many people who were involved in a Hawaiian and Polynesian dance group because I had a sweet eye for a sweet girl who was my first girlfriend at the time who was dancing Beamer style hula, which we will probably mention in a few minutes, uh, for this Polynesian dance group. And so I saw them performing. I was 15 years of age in 1985. And I thought, oh, wow, this looks great. I, I, I really uh, enjoyed the Tahitian drumming, especially. So I joined their classes and learned through the community classes that they were offering how to play Tahitian drums and to play the ukulele and the guitar and so on. And I got really into it. That was my focus of time. Every day, that's all I would think about. I was, I was really into it. And then in 1987, I met a lady who actually had been seminal in forming the group. Her name was Auntie Nona Beamer. She came over to California, to Walnut Creek, where we were based, because the original lady who had founded our group uh, had passed away. And uh, she was one of Auntie Nona's students in the 1940s. So what happened was we uh, met there in California at a performance. I met Auntie Nona and we just got along like bread and butter, you know, just super well. And I became a pen friend with her, really. She was living here in Pahoa, which is close to Hilo town here. And we became pen friends. And, and at the time also, I was trying to learn Hawaiian language, but I couldn't find anywhere to really learn Hawaiian. Just say something about your attraction to her. I mean, what, what was that? I mean, she picked you out or something? Well, what, yeah, what? she kind of did. What happened was, you know, Auntie Nona had arrived over there and we all knew what a special lady she was. About how old was she at that time? Oh, she was born in 1923, so she was in her late 60s, I okay. suppose. All right. Um and so she was a she was a cultural icon here in Hawaii. She had done an awful lot to help Hawaiian culture be recognized as something valuable again for the Hawaiian people. She had been teaching for 40 years at Kamehameha Schools, which is an esteemed school, private school here in Hawaii. She'd been teaching for all those, those years. Her classes were uh, open to all of these young kids who wanted to learn her hula and of her stories and, and how to chant and all of those things. And those children grew up and became some of the big movers and shakers in the Hawaiian Renaissance, uh, which we should probably cover too, uh, for the 1970s, the Hawaiian Renaissance. So by the time she came to California in 87, uh, to our remembrance performance for the lady who had founded the group and as a thank you to Auntie Nona for having made the whole thing possible, you know, I already was in great awe of her. And... There I was. I, she always used to say the story that, uh, you know, here is this Haole boy, a white boy, uh, dancing with the Tongans and singing with the Tahitians and playing music with the Hawaiians and, and doing haka with the Maori on stage, you know, just seemed like such an unusual thing to see. And I think Auntie Nona sort of, uh, I don't know why, but she really took a liking to me. Uh, the fact that 
you know, I was in like a in a completely different way of expressing myself than what you would think. I mean, you would think maybe a boy of my age would be uh, out, you know, having fun on the town or something. I don't know. But why was this Howley boy involved with Hawaiian and, and Polynesian things? It really probably fascinated her. And I had also made my first attempt at making a lei. And of course, a lei, you string flowers together. I had gone to the flower market in San Francisco and I had bought plumeria flowers and I had strung a lei for her, which was terrible. I mean, it was a really horrible looking lei. I didn't know really how to make lei, you know. I just asked a few people and, and of course I had seen lei before, but usually fake flower lei that we would wear. So anyway, I tried to make a, a real lei and it had all sorts of gaps in it, which is not what you want when you make a lei. And I presented it to her with my love. And of course, uh, she said, oh, thank you, darling. This is a beautiful lei and so on. Anyway, that kind of sealed the friendship right there. She was very happy. Uh, and and yeah, that that's really how that started. I, I love that idea yeah. that this young man <laughs> took the time to... <laughs> to make a lay however badly it was yes. put together and her appreciation of yeah. that and that said yeah. something about you deeply about you how you respected the culture in, in some way yeah and I don't really know why that grew in me and at that time it was really just a, a small seed and a small little uh, I'm trying to think of the English, English word it's like a little um, a little sprout growing out of the ground, if you will, that was inside my my soul for Hawaiian and Polynesian things. But coincident with Auntie Nona's arrival was the departure of my mother and stepfather to go back to Europe. And when that happened, I decided that I wanted to stay in California, and I moved in with some Tongan people, you know, a family from Tonga. Actually, there were 14 of us, including children, in a two-bedroom apartment. Oh, what a crowd. Yes, in Pleasant Hill, California. And I, I think of them as fairly large people, Oh, too. they are large people, yes. yes, indeed, yes. And I was a scrawny, skinny little howley <laughs> boy, or, you know, palangi, as they would say. And so what really turned me on living with them was that I was starting to learn Tongan language. And I thought, wow, now when we sing Tongan songs, I can understand a few of these words and I know I'm saying them right and so on. And that, you know, that was the, the spark that really made me interested in the language of Polynesia, languages of Polynesia. And I thought, oh, maybe one day I can get into Polynesia proper myself and, and go to Tonga and maybe go to live over there and, and do whatever one would do in Tonga. <laughs> I had no idea at the time. And uh, eventually Hawaii became the entry point to Polynesia uh, because it was the easiest place to get to, but also because in 1994, after many years of communicating via letter, Auntie Nona sent word that she wanted me to come to Hawaii. And so I moved over here with two weeks' notice. I just left everything. I jumped on the plane with a few suitcases and I arrived here in Hawaii. And I ended up living with Auntie Nona uh, in that, that uh, late summer of 94. And then uh, she said, oh, well, you need to go to UH Hilo and attend classes. And, and I, through that's being the here, that's the university here, the University of Hawaii at Hilo. And uh, I attended Hawaiian language classes in the summer of 94, actually. And then um, 
that's how my story started with with learning Hawaiian officially. That's know? that's quite amazing. I mean, you almost got commissioned then. I mean, <laughs> uh, a royal uh, yes. invitation that is not yeah. to be refused, so right. to speak. Right, yeah. It was, um, you know, I'm so fortunate. Although Auntie Nona took many people under her wing. I mean, many, she gave the the push to many local kids, hundreds of them, to explore Hawaiian culture, including language, of course, to explore Hawaiian culture and to love Hawaiian culture in hula, in storytelling, in dance, in puppetry, chanting, all aspects of Hawaiian culture and arts. And so I was just one of them. But what I think was slightly different about me was that she had picked me out from the mainland and brought me over here um, to be with her. I want to remind our listeners who I'm with, and I'm going to remind people of his website. So before I do that, I want to ask you, what is on your website before I give the website? Yeah, yeah. thank you. Well, I have a website where I have Hawaiian language instruction and some cultural knowledge and and, uh, little interesting things to learn about Hawaiian culture and language. And uh, I tried to make it available to as many people as possible. And I thought, well, the best way to share that knowledge that I've gained from Auntie Nona and from all these other sources is to put it on the internet because it can go far and wide and around the world. So that's the website. It's basically to learn Hawaiian language and culture on the internet. Exactly. Thank you. So uh, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Kaliko Beamer Trap, and he is the creator of this website, oleloonline.com, and you spell olelo, O-L-E-L-O, online, O-N-L-I-N-E.com, oleloonline.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. E akumako e o mai o e o kavohiku kapulani heinoa here with Kaliko Beamer-Trap, and he is the creator of the oleloonline.com, teaches Hawaiian language both in the university and online and wherever else he can do it. (laughs) You're a musician, you play the ukulele, (laughs) you you do it all, I think, (laughs) and you're an enthusiastic supporter of the spread of this beautiful language. And I want to say it is a beautiful language. It's beautiful to the ear. And as I was coming over, um, I was talking to different people about where I was going. You know, you're in the terminal and you're sitting next to someone and you have a, a conversation. 
And this person said, oh, you know, oh, the Hawaiian language is one of the most beautiful languages in the world. And she had traveled all over the world and had heard many languages, and she considered the Hawaiian language as one of the most beautiful to the ear. Would would you agree? Yeah, with- yes, certainly. I think one of the most important aspects of that is that every word ends in a vowel. So whenever you hear Hawaiian spoken, you have that nice vowel ending to every word, and it allows for the flow of the word to go into the next word very smoothly and melodically, of course, combined with intonation and the way that we the way that we use rhythm in our voices, the way that we use stress in our voices, that is, you know, word stress, and then um, intonation in general. Uh, that is uh, particularly Hawaiian. And it's a it's different from English. It's not perhaps as harsh as English. It doesn't have as many odd consonants, if you will. We have just a few consonants in our five vowels. We have 13, quote-unquote, letters of the alphabet. Uh, that's all we need. And we can talk about everything and anything at any time. And so uh, that's how it's been since time immemorial. That's so beautiful. So yeah. so give us some example. Let's say... Let's say in the Hawaiian language, there are many, many, many words for rain, wind, moon, I think. Yes. You, you, said, you told me that for moon, there are lots. So uh, this morning, there was some rain. So is, say, speak about the rain this morning. Uh, oh, <laughs> so translate. <laughs> I just said that uh, this morning we had some rain here in Hilo, and of course it's the famous Kanilehua rain, which is the rain that rustles the lehua, the red lehua blossoms in the forest of the uplands where we sit today. And, uh, and that's why Hilo is so beautiful with this famous Kanilehua rain. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. In this language... It's really important, I think, for anyone when they want to know a culture, truly know a culture, it might be helpful to learn the language. Yeah. So do you have any comment on that? Oh, sure do. Yeah. So, um, you know, let me just take a step back. So when I was on the Isle of Wight as a a young uh, man, a young boy, I uh, was associated with a family in France. They lived in the Haute-Savoie, which is uh, in the mountainside of France, close to Geneva or Geneva. And uh, my mother was a, a family friend with the mother in France. And when they were young, they used to do a family swap every summer. And the woman in France used to come to the Isle of Wight and stay with my grandparents. And meanwhile, my mother would fly over there and stay with those grandparents. And so when it came to my generation... My mother decided that she would send me to France every summer, and then their oldest girl would come to the Isle of Wight. And so being sent to France every summer, even when I lived in America, I flew back to the Isle of Wight and I would go to France, uh, allowed me to experience learning a language from a quote-unquote immersion method, right? I mean, I had taken language classes at school, as one is required to do in England, but Being sent to France and living with that family over there, there was no chance to speak English. They didn't want to speak English. As you know, French are very 
very <laughs> persistent about that. They 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 value their language very and highly. Persnickety <laughs> and persnickety as well. And uh, I would uh, I I stayed over there and I would learn really you know family language and so on. And what I loved about that and have loved ever since is that. When I speak French, if I'm if I if I go to visit someplace like Tahiti, for example, and I'm I'm speaking French over there, it's like I have a different personality. You can you can sort of channel that boy or that 10, 12 year old boy who, you know, spent time living over there. I remember my time in the kitchen and in the living room and watching films and eating French breakfast and so on and working with them. Those things are my experiences, which make me who I am. But it's almost as if because it was in French language, it is associated with French culture to me and French behavior and French movement and French joking and the way your body moves, your eyes move, your, the expressions you might say. I just love the fact that that's sort of compartmentalized in my brain after many years of practice that I can you know, sort of become a different person when I'm there. I'm Simon, you know, when I speak French. Well, when I came over here to Hawaii, I became associated on the very first day of my arrival in Hilo. I became associated with, uh, with a family that is, has Marquesan roots, that is in the Marquesas Islands, which lies between here and Tahiti, between Hawaii and Tahiti. And I ended up going down to the Marquesas many, many times between 1995 and 2011. That was the last time I went there. But I used to go every summer. As soon as school would end, I was teaching at the Hawaiian Immersion School here. And as soon as that class would end, I'd be on the plane on Saturday, fly straight down to Tahiti, head over to the Marquesas and stay there for two or three months and then come back to Hawaii. And that experience allowed me to learn Marquesan language to the point where I can discuss anything, just about anything, any time of the day, you know, uh, continuously, not just a few phrases, but I mean, I can actually speak it. And that also has its own personality. I can, when I'm over there, I'm like a different person. I can, I might look the same on the outside, but I feel that I can express myself differently the way they do. I can change my intonation and my and the pitch in my voice and the strength of my voice and the way my eyes move and the, the expressions that I make, I can change to match that environment and what the people there are like. And I just find that is so fun. I just love that. It's like you can be a different person again. You know, in the United States, it's a, it's a fairly large territory, let's say. <laughs> yes. So you're not crossing like national boundaries a right, lot. Like right. in Europe, right. there are a lot of national boundaries. Yeah. And and so it's natural for people to pick up many different languages. Right. You fall asleep on the pla- on the train in, in Europe and you're in a different country. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, close your eyes for a moment and <laughs> yeah, there you are. That's right. But here in the U.S., we're not um, as emboldened to learn a language. Right. And I think we're bereft as a mm-hmm. culture because mm-hmm. of that, because mm-hmm. there, we we don't have that understanding that you're talking about, about the French whole people, their culture, yeah. who, their cosmology, or the right. Marcations, or whomever. And here we're talking about the Hawaiians. Yeah. Uh, why is it important to be teaching this to young children and bringing this bringing this into the culture? What is it doing for Hawaii and for the world? Then? Right. Well, for Hawaii, I think, uh, you know, to answer the first part of that question, for Hawaii, it helps to maintain the 
indigenous culture that was here before the arrival of Westerners. Uh, that was, you know, around 1778. So it's been quite a while now that we've had Western influence here in Hawaii. But I think with the the fact that American and Western culture and ideas are coming into Hawaii so fast, especially with the the uh, the arrival of the internet and 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 all of that uh, and media that is, uh, you know, coming over from the U.S. mainland, that's really diluting the public consciousness about Hawaiian Hawaiian traditions, Hawaiian language, Hawaiian ways of doing things. And there are pockets of people in Hawaii who are striving to maintain that, whether it's taro farming, being a musician, uh, performing in hula, uh, you know, language revitalization, all sorts of areas where uh, navigation, for example, you know, Polynesian navigation, there are these uh, pockets of people who are really into retaining Hawaiian culture um, and I think that is so super important for Hawaii because otherwise it would be gone. There is no other place on the earth where Hawaiian cultural understandings are native, of course. I mean, by definition, here we are in Hawaii. We have native Hawaiians here. We don't have them anywhere else. They're not in Tonga. They're not in Tahiti. They're not in America. And they're not in India. They're only right here on these small little islands. And so... You know, if we look back in time, we think about around 1982, there were only 2,000 speakers left of Hawaiian language, down from in the hundreds of thousands in the 1800s. So, you know, it, it dropped down to a very few speakers. And that's a topic that will probably be very interesting to your listeners is, is uh, about the revitalization of that. But for the world, it's like a flower garden. I mean, would it be good just to have only one type of flower that we would ever see on the earth. You know, to me, all those different types of flowers are beautiful. You, you might think, wow, you know, the plumeria is the most beautiful flower I've ever seen. And then you take a trip to somewhere else and you say, wow, I've never seen a tiger lily before. Or, wow, I've never seen a lehua or I've never seen what, you know, you, you just, sometimes you don't know what's out there because you're only in your small little area and you don't, it's not even in your consciousness right. to know what else is out there. And, and that's the beauty of retaining native languages because it, it, it's like all those various flowers around the world. Kaliko, can you help us to um, highlight, let's say, one of the cultural blessings of the Hawaiian culture that can be preserved through its language? Is there anything that you could... Well, I mean, we had just talked to earlier uh, tonight about wind and rain and moons and things like that. You know, that understanding of how wind and rain and moons affect your life, that's a, a particularly Hawaiian thing. I mean, there's around Polynesia, there are similar ideas, but Hawaii has its own style of that. And what I mean by that is, for example, with uh, rain names, you know, we don't just say rain. We can, there's a, there's a general word, ua, which means rain. But Every area has its own rain name, which, which is the type of rain that that place has. And it's different from the rain at the other place, and it's different than the rain at the other place. Uh, we also have uh, wind names, the same idea, the different winds that blow, the different fragrances that come from those winds, the feeling that they have. Um, so the wind and the rain have names all over the place. And then we have the many types of Rain, for example, many different words for the different types of rain. So that tells us that Hawaiians were 
thinking that rain and the different ways that the rain is expressed, if you will, the way the way the rain comes down, the way it touches you, the way it touches the land, that is something very important in Hawaiian culture. Otherwise, it wouldn't be named, you know, individually like that, I don't think. So, and it's the same with the moon, the moon right. calendar. Every night of the moon has its name. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Kaliko Beamer Trap, a man from England, but now a, a person of Hawaii teaching the Hawaiian language. And if you want to know more about his work and learn some of the Hawaiian language, you can go to his website. It's oleloonline.com, and you, he spells olelo. O-L-E-L-O, oleloonline.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Kaliko Beamer Trapp, and he is a language teacher of Hawaiian language here on the big island of Hawaii. And that's where we are right now. And um, I would love to go back a little bit to uh, Auntie Nona and who she was and how you actually became Hane. Hane. Hane mm-hmm. uh, to her. And what does that mean? Right, yeah. Um, that's a good question. You know, hanai is a word meaning to feed somebody. That's the literal meaning of the word hanai is to feed, to feed somebody. Now, traditionally in the olden days, you know, there were many families, maybe one too many children come along or, you know, you can't take care of the children. So another family or oftentimes relatives, grandparents and so on, would hanai one of the children, meaning take that child and care for it as their own. And, you know, the child would grow up and, and those Hanai parents were her parents or his parents. Um, it's, it's kind of like adoption, you know, in that sense. But it's not a formal thing on a piece of paper. It's just traditionally it would be that one family takes care of a child who needed to be taken care of. And so that idea of Hanai then was brought down through time and there are still families that do Hanai. But in the modern time, we've added another aspect to Hanai. And I think that uh, my, my situation represents this, this newer type. And that is that sometimes you want to take a person who's a little bit older already, not a baby or not a, a one-year-old or two-year-old, but take somebody who's already a teenager, you know, perhaps, and take care of that child take care of that person for whatever reason. Sometimes it becomes because they're on the wrong side of the tracks, you know, in trouble. Or sometimes it's because they're looking for something to do and you might, you know, be afraid that they get into trouble. So you want to educate them in what you know, which is Hawaiian farming or, um, or tapa making or, you know, any, any number of Hawaiian uh, things. <clears throat> so you hanai the person. And in this case with Auntie Nona, she was so sweet because... She, she wanted to have somebody 
who she could give her stories and her chants and her histories, her history, bits of information about songs and so on. She wanted to give that to somebody. And her two sons, Kapono and Keola, uh, are you know well-known musicians here in Hawaii, Keola and Kapono Bima, uh, very well-known musicians through the 70s and, and 80s. And still to this day, actually, they still play music. And they were very much focused on slack key, guitar, and music. And I think Auntie Nona perhaps said, you know, I want to find somebody to whom I can give this knowledge of my old stories and my old songs and my teaching methodology. And then here I come walking along, you know. <laughs> and so she basically... Did that. She she did that via a Hanai relationship. So in 1996, we went to Waipio Valley, ostensibly to give some birthday gifts to friends of hers. These birthday gifts were small chants that Auntie Nona and I had written as name songs, if you will, giving Hawaiian names to certain friends of hers. And so I thought that that's what this trip was all about. We arrived down there, we gave the names, surely enough. But when we arrived down there, all sorts of family members were there. Beamer family members, and we, uh, Auntie Nona turned around, and I was sitting in a chair next to her on the little tiny DS that we had made, a little tiny stage. And she turned and said, Well, everybody, thank you for being here for Kaliko's Hanai ceremony. And I said, What? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. So, anyway, the tea leaves were laid out, and then we had a, a little ceremony where Auntie Nona basically invited me to join the family and asked the family if it was okay that I join. And I said, you know, yes, if you'll have me, of course, I'd love to. And I shall uphold the name. I shall uphold the name as I uphold my name, Trap. I shall uphold the name, Beamer, as well. And, and follow your instructions, Ma. I call her Ma. And so from then on, I've been part of, uh, you know, Auntie Nona's side of the Beamer family. And I'm so grateful to, to be there. Uh, she passed away in uh, 2010. And so, sorry, 2008, I apologize. She passed away in 2008, April the 10th. And so, uh, you know, my, I feel it's my responsibility or what you say in Hawaiian, my kuleana, to continue on uh, with her teachings that she gave me. And I am so grateful that she did. Um, so that's how I, I appreciate that. It gave me a real big push and it's allowed me to have more uh, influence, if you will, it allows me to have more power inside, knowing that I I have the love of Auntie Nona backing me up, if you will, uh, from wherever she may be at the time, at this time, uh, and so I feel that that's my it's keeping me rolling, and I and I want to keep it going. She had a particular way of teaching too, didn't she? That, oh yes. That you carry on. Can you just give us a little description? You know, it's to me, it's. I probably can be brought down, although nobody's asked me that specifically before. I think perhaps the main thing is encouragement. You know, even though you see students who are not doing so well, or maybe, you know, it's like when they when they draw a picture, you tell you might tell a little kid, draw a picture of an insect, you know, and then some horrendous picture pops up. You know, you still try to find the best thing in there. Oh, now that is beautiful. Look at the shape of that opu, that tummy on that that insect. That's very nice. Now, now, darling, what about the antenna? What about the eyes? What about the the top of the thorax? You know, those kind of things. Like you look for the good thing and lift up the student and then 
say, now here's where we can make some improvement. How about this? You know, leading them on instead of pushing them along, you know, leading them along with uh, some interesting way of talking and being sweet and nice. But at the same time, there's a little stern hand back there ready just in case they want to, uh, you know, hang about in the bushes. You can you can grab them by the hand and still pull them along if you need to, but then get right back there and lead them. Uh, I think that that's one of the uh, most important aspects of Auntie Nona's teaching that I do continue on. And I've used that teaching in the Hawaiian immersion schools where I taught 7th to 12th grade from 1996 to 2002. And then I returned here to the university and I've been teaching classes here at UH Hilo, uh, Hawaiian language classes, as well as classes, linguistics classes in Hawaiian language about Hawaiian language or Polynesian languages. And even with adult students like this, I still use the same techniques. And I, I try to really lift up the students and help them to see the good parts of what they've done. And then that's where I add on, now here's how we can make an improvement. Here's how we can make an improvement. And try to lead them forward to that want make them want to do it. Let's talk a bit about hula, uh, because many of us are familiar with hula, but maybe not the origins of it or even what I, I think. I, I heard that Auntie Nona uh, brought hula back to its original form that there, <laughs> that was kind of uh, restricted for a while. Is it? Am I getting that correct? Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. So, uh, you know, if we look back into the ancient past in Polynesia, all the Polynesian people have dance, you know, dance. And so uh, hula was mostly done, as far as we know, on heyo or religious platforms for religious reasons. So to illustrate a story or a chant that is done for a, one of the many gods or for some outcome or certainly sometimes for the entertainment of the chiefs. And so hula had, you know, was done by the chiefs for mostly religious purposes, but then also some entertainment as well. Now, what happened when the Western missionaries arrived is that they thought that this was very lewd and lascivious behavior and that it should not be allowed because these heathens are doing dancing in all sorts of ways and it must be all about sex, you know, which of course was not the case at all. But they basically made it very difficult for people to dance in the 1800s. They, the, the missionary influence made people feel embarrassed if they were to even show those kind of things. Playing the nose flute, for example, was considered, uh, you know, the devil's instrument and so on because it had to do with love sorcery, they thought, and so on. So the 1800s really was a time when hula knowledge went underground, if you will. The, the people who knew about hula and even chanting went sort of, quote-unquote, underground, kept it to themselves, kept it in their own families. And that was continued through past the, uh, the time of the overthrow in 1893, past the time of the provisional government, and then to the territory of Hawaii, and all the way up until really uh, brought out into the public in a new way in the 1920s when the territory of Hawaii wanted to promote itself to the world, most especially the United States, as a destination for tourism. And at that time, uh, we find new types of music coming out uh, of Hawaii, you know, with the steel guitar and, and the bass and all those kind of music, as well as flashy hula brought forward from the old days of chanting into melodic songs. And so 
that then went through that era of grass skirt hula and you know tin pan alley hula and all that kind of thing all the way up until the 1950s and during this time it was considered improper at Kamehameha schools where Auntie Nona was a student to do hula at all and so if you wanted to do hula you could do sitting hula but you were not supposed to stand up and dance and Auntie Nona broke that uh, mold by actually standing up and dancing. Uh, she did get expelled for doing it. But anyway, she talked her way back into uh, getting into school again. And um, in the end, she encouraged that, you know, hula is an expression of being Hawaiian. It's not lewd and lascivious behavior. It's not something that should be stamped out. It's a beautiful expression that comes from native roots and should be continued on. And so that's why hula then was brought back out into the open, if you will, and various kumu hula or teachers of hula have their own lineages now. And they talk about, you know, this was my kumu and this was my kumu and this was my kumu. They can count back generations of kumu all the way back into those days when hula was underground. And now here we are with things like this, the Merry Monarch today, which is a huge festival of, you know, hula, both in traditional and in modern styles. Uh, and so that was one of the things that Auntie Nona worked on as well. You spoke briefly about chanting too, indigenous chanting. Can mm -hmm. you say something about that? Yeah, so chanting uh, is done by uh, you know Hawaiians, of course, from traditional times, and it has. There are many different ways of using your voice that we can actually talk about different styles of chant but none of them are melodic in the way that we would think of Western music uh, or where you have harmonies and so on. There may be one or two or maybe three notes only in chant, and the techniques used in chant to make it quote-unquote interesting are different than what we see in Western music. Uh, so, for example, we don't have rhyming lines, which Western music has. We'll have something like, uh, you know, uh, a word at the end of one line, which is the same as the word for the next line. So it, it allows the, the two lines to sort of um, blend together, it's if you will. very intricate. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about that in just okay. one moment. I just want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Calico Beamer Trap, and he is the teacher of Hawaiian language here on the island of Hawaii, on the big island. And he has a website called Olelo online.com olelo o l e l o online.com or you can go to the website of new dimensions newdimensions.org to get there i'm justine willis toms you're listening to new dimensions Thank you. 
I'm here with Keliko Beamer-Trapp, and he is a teacher of Hawaiian language here on the big island of Hawaii. And we were talking about chant, and you said it's not quite rhyming sort of chant, but what is the importance of chant in the Hawaiian culture? Well, um, the chant was one of the methods of retaining Hawaiian history. So, um, you know, from generation to generation, the chants were retained without change as much as possible. I mean, it was it was considered wrong to make any changes to chants unless something accidental got in there. Really, they didn't change. And these would be like the genealogies of the chiefs or traditional stories told through chants or what we call mele, which are, you know, poetic compositions where, for example, if there were a story about somebody going to some place or you know, somebody climbing a mountain or whatever, those uh, stories are actually contained in chants rather than a long sort of open-ended narrative. The, the narrative pieces are short and the chant pieces in between are what really fill in the interesting aspects of the stories and those chants didn't change. So over time, we have this huge body of knowledge which has been retained in Hawaii and when the arrival of the Westerners came here, you know, in the 1820s, they started writing down Hawaiian for the first time and making newspapers. The first Hawaiian newspaper was in 1834. And by the time we got to 1861, we had our first independent newspaper. And after that time, we had uh, around 168 newspapers between 1861 and the mid-1900s when the last Hawaiian newspaper finished. And those newspapers were full of all of these chants, which were written down by Hawaiians, realizing that the culture and the language was under attack from westernization. And so we are so fortunate that today we have these, this huge repository of Hawaiian newspapers and, uh, and later on Hawaiian recordings of voices of the kupuna, of the elders speaking, and these are now becoming available online, which is absolutely incredible. And you're very immersed in that project. Yes, because that's that's a project that I've been working on for several years now. We we have a an online digital library called Ulukau. That's U-L-U-K-A-U. Uh, and you can Google that and find that very easily. But that's a Hawaiian l- online library. We have audio files there. We have all the Hawaiian newspapers are there. We have maps and place names and all sorts of fascinating stuff. Even the Bible and everything is on there. But this is thanks the to Bible the Bible in Hawaiian. Oh yes, that well, that was the first document that they wanted to put into Hawaiian in the written form, of course. Of course. In the late eighteen twenties, after they invented a way of writing it down, you know, they said, "Okay, let's." I mean, the goal was to write the Bible in Hawaiian. So we have all of this uh, stuff. But you know, when we talk about the the Hawaiian literature, if you will. That is all of these chants and all of the old songs, the mele, the poetic compositions, brought forward all the way to today without change because of the fact that they were written down in the 1800s with such passion. And so that's that's where we're very grateful for all of those kupuna who kept the tradition of not changing the chants as much as possible. And in fact, if we read the old Hawaiian newspapers, we find people writing in each time the Publication came out, you know, if it was a, a twice weekly or a once weekly, saying, hey, you got that wrong. That line is not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be this. You know, they were right back and forth. Oh, you're full of baloney, you know, in a sense. Uh, you know, that's not right. This is the way it's supposed to be. 
And so it's wonderful. It's a, when you're able to speak Hawaiian and you can then delve into these sources of uh, from traditional times, that's when we find out really what the thinking was about kahuna or priests and the religious system and games and sex and all the old history of Hawaii. You really find that by reading the traditional native source, which is written in Hawaiian language in all these newspapers and many books too that came out during that time. You know, not relying on people who have translated them and added their own flavor of meaning, you're getting it from a secondary source there. If you can go back to the old newspapers, if you learn how to speak Hawaiian, well, wow, you have access to this huge field of beautiful chants, beautiful songs, beautiful stories, and so much cultural information embodied in these newspapers and in books in the late 1800s. That's amazing that that's uh, preserved. And this has to do with that whole revitalization movement that you're part of. So tell me, tell us a little bit about well, this. Well, um, by the time we got to the overthrow, that would be 1893, um, the the state of Hawaiian language uh, was uh, was poor. Hawaiian language was being squashed slowly by Western Westernization and English language. For example, by the time it got to around 1893 of the overthrow, there were really only uh, 28 schools that were teaching through Hawaiian language. And when you say overthrow... This is the overthrow of the kingdom of Hawaii. The country of Hawaii was overthrown by a, a group of businessmen from America who said, you know, they, they wanted to take over Hawaii for the, for the, for the protection of the people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mostly the Westerners who were living here. Uh, and so they overthrew the Hawaiian government uh, by force. And unfortunately for the queen who was in power at the time, Lili Uokalani, uh, she was not able to get the U.S. government to agree uh, to give the country back. Instead, uh, the United States said, okay, we'll turn it into a territory, and it became a territory of the U.S. And that brings us to this point about um, change over time and the revitalization, because when the overthrow happened and then it became a territory of the United States, uh, there was a huge surge in love and patriotism for Hawaiian things in the very early 1900s. Uh, and so we have at that, that period, the first sort of songs being written uh, the patriotic songs for Hawaii, uh, the songs about the islands and the the rain names or the lay names or the mountain names or the colors that each island would have, all written in these westernized songs where you have melodic structure, four verses, five verses, two, three, or four lines per verse. All of that in modern you know, style music that you would hear today with ukulele and guitar and all that, that's when the ukulele came around. That's when guitar was added to Hawaiian music. That's when the steel guitar was invented, right around that time at the very first part of the 1900s. And then as time moved forward, there was also a huge influx of foreigners to Hawaii. We had Chinese, Korean, Filipinos, all coming in, Portuguese, um, you know, all sorts of folks coming into Hawaii as workers for the sugarcane plantations. And they were also, that admixture of people meant that Hawaiian language was kind of squashed down even more and pidgin English grew as the language of the people. Those last folks who grew up speaking Hawaiian at home were born in the 19, early 1900s, 1915, 1920 maybe. After that point, after 1920 or so, people were speaking English at home because 
the territory would send teachers around to the homes and say, you guys are not supposed to speak Hawaiian at home. You're supposed to speak English to your kids. That's the language of the future. That's the language of prosperity. This is the territory of Hawaii. We're going into the future. Stop looking back. You know, and so they convinced the parents that the kids have to speak English. They grew up then speaking pidgin English, which is what we still have around today, based in Hawaiian, but with all of this admixture of other languages, including English. And then if we fast forward now to the 1970s, 1970s, you're talking about these folks who were born in the early 1900s as Hawaiian native speakers learning Hawaiian at home were in their old age already and heading on out to the vast beyond. And so the young folks at that time in the 1970s said, you know, they were in the early 20s at that time, they would say, oh my gosh, we're losing these elders. We're losing these kupuna. We need to somehow preserve this. We, we, need to, we need to preserve our knowledge. We need to record them, record their voices. We need to write down their stories. We need to recover our Hawaiian-ness because they're disappearing. These old folks are disappearing. And so, thank goodness they did. And we had resurgence in Hawaiian navigation. We have resurgence in Hawaiian planting practices and dissemination of that knowledge of slack key music and Hawaiian music and Hawaiian songs, lots of new Hawaiian songs being written at that time. And then the language itself coming, being taught again in schools openly and the invention then in the 1980s of Hawaiian immersion school systems, which then goes all the way through to today where we have now a PhD in Hawaiian right here at this university where I'm sitting. We have master's degrees and PhDs in Hawaiian language all the way through with this revitalization that happened um, sparked by the loss of these kupuna or the elders in the 1970s. And so it's important to me that we keep on this work, that we keep on revitalizing Hawaiian, working hard on preserving it as accurately as possible in the same way that those chants had to be preserved by the kupuna, not to have them change. I think also the language has to be preserved properly. We must not let it, let it be pigeonized and move it forward so that the earth has all of its beautiful contingent of flowers, including the Hawaiian flower, which is so valuable, I think, to world culture. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I just want to end on, on some idea. There is an idea of aloha. Mm-hmm. It has meaning. Mm-hmm. It's not just a phrase, but it's a meaningful mm-hmm. phrase. Mm-hmm. And we have like 30 seconds okay. for you to say, what is the true meaning of aloha? Oh my goodness, that can't fit into 30 seconds, but <laughs> aloha is love, aloha is compassion, aloha is hello, and aloha is goodbye. Aloha is thanks, and aloha is appreciation. It's so many different things, depending how you say it, how you connecting with the person that you are saying it to and what the context may be. It's a beautiful word to remember. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. you so much, Kaliko, for being with us today on New Dimensions. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking to Kaliko Beamer Trap, and he is the creator of the online oleloonline.com. And and this is teaching. You can go on there and get all sorts of wonderful information about the Hawaiian language. Learn it online. He's just spreading it out in in all sorts of ways. So do check it out. Oleloonline.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
program number 3681. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.